Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Aid work can be a dangerous business. According to the latest verified data, 131 aid workers were killed in the line of duty in 2018. Many more were injured in serious attacks. According to my guest today, Abby Stoddard, attacks on aid workers and humanitarian relief operations are both a symptom and a weapon of modern warfare. Indeed, it is the changing nature of conflict around the world that is driving increasing levels of violence against aid workers. Abby Stoddard is a former aid worker and a longtime researcher who, along with her research partner Adele Harmer, has compiled a dataset of verified attacks on aid workers around the world. Their research are compiled in the Aid Worker Security Database, which has tracked attacks on aid workers since 1997. And the data they compiled tell many stories and offer important insights into trends in conflict, which we discuss on the show today. Abby Stoddard's new book in which much of this data is discussed and analyzed is called Necessary Risks, and I'll post a link to her book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. In fact, she offers a discount for humanitarian workers. Abby Stoddard is a partner with Humanitarian Outcomes, which is an international consultancy that does research and offers policy advice for governments and organizations on humanitarian action. I have relied on her research many times over the years in my own reporting. And I'm very excited to speak with her, and the book is a great read for anyone interested in humanitarian affairs and also the nature of conflict today. As always, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to peruse our robust archive of conversations about interesting topics in global affairs that don't always make headlines, but probably should. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please do send me an email and you can reach me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Abby Stoddard of Humanitarian Outcomes. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My research partner, Adele Harmer, and I 
were looking at this issue of whether it was true that things were getting worse in terms of insecurity for aid workers, whether the humanitarian space, so to speak, was really shrinking. And there was this big debate over it with some people saying, no, it's always been dangerous. And others saying, absolutely, yes, it's a step change. But there were no actual numbers of how many aid workers were being attacked. So there was really no way to measure it. So we set about putting together the aid worker security database, which now has incidents from 1997 through the present and um, continually updated. And major incidents, which is what we collect, our definition as killings, kidnappings, and attacks that result in serious injury. So it's all deliberate violence. And we source it from um, information sharing arrangements we have with uh, security consortia and directly with agencies. And we also have sort of uh, scraping tools that we get reports from from media and social media. And then we go through a process of verification every year where we go to uh, the organizations involved and have them verify, correct, confirm um, these incidents. And we also collect other sort of unreported incidents through that process. So the the data in the database has, um, the, the unit is the attack. We have the date, the country and geocoded uh, location information, the gender of the victim, their institutional affiliation, so whether they're UN, Red Cross movement, NGO, or other, um, whether they're international or national staff, and of course, the outcomes of the incidents, whether they were killed, wounded, or kidnapped. We have the means of violence, so whether there were it was a shooting or an aerial bombardment or IED, for instance, and the context that the attack took place in. So whether it was an ambush or a raid, um, that sort of thing. We have also information where it's available on the perpetrators and their motives. And then we give sort of brief details of each incident. And it's through collecting that data that you're able to identify long-term trends. That's right. Um, And we have um, a whole other database which helps us get the denominator so that we can calculate rates. How prevalent are attacks on aid workers? Well, first of all, violence against aid workers, against civilian aid operations in general, is not new by any stretch. But it's a dangerous profession, and uh, the numbers are trending upwards in terms of casualties, both in absolute terms and rates. So every year since 2003, we've seen aid worker casualties at least in the hundreds, and that's counting people who are killed, wounded, or kidnapped while on the job. Um, but I, I would like to say it's not a global phenomenon, uh, meaning that you know each year there are attacks in dozens of countries, but only a handful of these contacts have numbers in the sort of double and triple digits. And those really drive the totals year by year. And those tend to be the major conflict cases in places with weak and unstable governments. So for the past five years, South Sudan has sort of led the field in the um, highest number of aid worker attacks. It's interesting. In your book, you use data suggesting that, you know, in terms of number of, say, aid worker fatalities per 100,000 aid workers deployed, the number is actually more than, say, the number of U.S. combat fatalities. It's arguably a more dangerous job than being a a U.S. soldier in combat. It's true. And that's not the case every year, but uh, many years that is true. Uh, U.S. combat forces and also uniformed U.N. peacekeepers And I also compared it against um, law enforcement officers in the U.S. And these are professions that 
um, have a direct threat of violence. And if you look at humanitarian aid workers, that's not even counting the accidents and illnesses and everything. So just in terms of um, a threat of physical deliberate violence, it is one of the most dangerous professions we have. And who are the aid workers who are most impacted by violence? So what many people may not realize is that the vast majority of aid workers generally are nationals of the countries that they're working in. Um, and because most aid workers are national staff, uh, about 90% of the victims are also national staff. But when we look at the rates of national and international or expatriate aid workers, you're seeing something interesting, which is that the the rates of violence for national aid workers is actually growing. So they're always the um, the largest number of victims in, in absolute terms. But international staff used to have a slightly higher attack rate, now perhaps explainable by there being a more visible target, um, fetching higher ransoms for kidnappings. But the attack rate is now equal between national and international staff. But the fatality rate for nationals is three times higher. So I think that shows in these more dangerous contexts uh, a reliance on international organizations using their partner organizations and remote operations with their national staff so that the brunt of the violence is really being borne by these nationals. So in places like Syria or Yemen, you have these large organizations, say, I don't know, I'm just picking one out of the random there, like the International Rescue Committee or Save the Children, but really, you know, they're working through local staff and national staff, maybe subcontracting a lot of their work to, to local NGOs. That's right. So it's both national staff in some cases, and then implementing partner organizations that uh, are of the country where they're working. So you mentioned that most of attacks and fatalities against aid workers come from just a handful of, of countries. This is not a global phenomenon. As you say, it's a phenomenon that is driven largely by certain countries. Can you yeah. just describe um, why that is and, and what those countries are that you're seeing these these large numbers of fatalities and attacks coming from? Yeah, as to why this is all happening, in the book I talk about the characteristics of the sorts of armed conflicts that we're seeing today and how you have the incentives of the non-state armed groups who are behind much of this violence. Um, these incentives do not impel them to protect humanitarian operations. And maybe if it's okay, I'll just step back a little bit historically um, where the original ideal of a protected operational space for neutral humanitarian presence as a matter of international law and kind of a pragmatic means for limiting bloodshed, that was really born of European interstate warfare of the 1800s, right? So that's what the Geneva Conventions are fundament fundamentally based on. And, you know, there are articles and additional protocols that deal with non-international conflicts, but it's really in a way maladapted to the sorts of internal and asymmetric wars that we're seeing now, which have not only been on the rise since World War II, but they're increasingly fragmented and chaotic. So like half of them are fought by more than two parties. And the ICRC reports that around 22% of them involve actually 10 or more 
So you're saying the, the ICRC is the International Committee for the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Yes. And, and yes. so you're saying that, that according to their data, uh, was it 20% of conflicts have 10 or more factions and, and belligerent Distinct groups? fighting forces, yes. And of 20%. course- and, and of course, this is not what in the 1800s the Geneva Conventions were designed for and the body of international humanitarian law that provides for that kind of space for humanitarian relief to operate. Right. That was really framed along there being two, maybe three sovereign entities um, where there are roughly equal benefits to each party and incentives for allowing a humanitarian presence that would aid civilians and wounded and prisoners of war. But when you're a far smaller insurgent force, or maybe a global jihadist movement, your strategic interests are very different. And it's dealing with these non-state forces that's really the biggest challenge to humanitarian aid workers when it comes to operating securely. And also, it also seems to a certain degree that like the nature of, say, the UN's work in, in a lot of these places is is changed and, and is different than it was even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, most UN, say, operations are there to support, say, you know, building state institutions. Um, you know, they're there for nation building, which necessarily aligns them with the, the state in which they're operating. But if you're a jihadist or insurgent group, you know, your your goal is to undermine and destabilize that state. And it seems that, you know, people driving in UN trucks or, you know, blue helmets are your targets because they are representatives, though they won't see themselves that way. But from a perspective of an insurgent, that they're representatives of the government. That's right. And the UN does have humanitarian agencies which try to carve out um, a neutral space to operate and not be seen as political actors. But of course, the UN always has that political identity. And often in these contexts, they are trying to create stability and peace and order and uh, maybe shore up the government. So very often they're automatically associated with the enemy by these non-state groups. And when that happens, they're seen as legitimate targets. I mean, it seems like a fundamentally like a disastrous situation with no easy way out. I mean, you, like, as I said, you, you have these agencies that are there to support humanitarian relief or, or do development. Um, but they're operating in the midst of a conflict in which the sort of principal political aim of one of the insurgent groups is to destabilize that government and that country that these agencies are seeking to prop up. I mean, is there any, like, how, how have aid agencies adapted to that? Well, the ones that have been most successful uh, do a couple of things. Um, first of all, they don't assume that they will be accepted by the community or uh, tolerated by the armed forces just because they call themselves a humanitarian organization. They know that they actually have to work for that acceptance and tolerance. Um, they also don't assume that they can ever reduce their risk to zero. So no matter how good your security risk mitigation is, there's always going to be a residual risk. What they do is be very explicit about what level of risk they are willing to accept for which activities. And having done that, actively work to continually assess and to weigh the different risks and manage them. Now, for most, this means investing in staff capacity in both situational analysis, but also outreach and communications, and really building skills and practical negotiation techniques. 
because even though these uh, non-state actors are very difficult to negotiate with in many cases, um, it can still be done. And there's been examples of success. It's still dangerous and hit or miss. But there are cases where a non-state actor will have incentives to allow humanitarian aid, uh, particularly if they're trying to control a certain area and actually provide some sort of governance. And it's knowing sort of what stage the conflict in, is in and what type of actor you're dealing with that can allow humanitarian organizations to begin to negotiate. Can you give me an example of a, a aid agency that was successfully able to negotiate with an insurgent group and what did that negotiation look like? Well, most negotiations with non-state actors happen at the ground level. And this is actually hindered in many ways by um, government counter-terror regulations, which try to block humanitarians from negotiation, negotiating or, or giving any sort of direct or indirect benefit to, um, to sanction groups. I remember actually this coming to a head a few years ago when uh, there was the threat and actual famine in, in Somalia. And aid agencies desperately wanted to reach areas under the control of al-Shabaab, but were concerned that U.S. government regulations might prevent um, them from doing so. That's right. And we've seen um, those kinds of counterterror regulations really skew the aid presence to areas where there's less risk. And that often means not only less security risk, but less legal risk um, and financial risk from the, uh, the donor government finding out that you're conducting business essentially with sanctioned groups. So Al-Shabaab will often ask for taxes. And this is the same with the Taliban and many other non-state armed groups that if you're going to be working here, we need to um, exact some financial remuneration from you. Now it is against all sorts of humanitarian principles to pay that sort of tax, but the phenomenon of paid access is very real and it's usually through intermediaries and there are often um, arrangements whereby the aid organization doesn't pay but their vendors their providers people that are bringing the aid in are sort of taxed secondarily so that's one way that they get around it but this is all kind of after the initial negotiation with the non-state actor about we this is who we are this is what we'll be doing. We need agreements that you will not be attacking us. And that uh, is can be a long process and can start kind of before an organization is even operating in a certain area. But if it's not done, the organization is putting its staff at great risk. Um, so in your book, you note that Attacks on aid workers can be an important indicator suggesting a future downward spiral of, of a government or some sort of destabilizing conflict situation. Um, can you share any examples of, of how that indicator has, has worked and, and how, that, how that process has worked? Well, generally we find that the more intense the conflict in um, an unstable environment, the greater the number of attacks against aid workers generally. But also, low levels of political stability correlate to aid worker attacks sort of independently. So we've seen higher numbers of attacks in countries whose governments scored lower on measures of political and economic effectiveness, on legitimacy and general sort of rule of law. So it does seem that um, the 
disintegration of government leads to an environment where you get increased aid worker attacks. And interestingly, we saw that the type of political regime in, the, in place didn't matter, um, but more it's, it's strength and stability. So whether it was a democratic or autocratic government um, was no more predictive, um, whether it was uh, weak or strong. In your in your work, you do, and, and I know in your data sets, you do distinguish uh, between attacks on aid workers and also uh, aid workers affiliated with the United Nations. Have you deduced or and any sort of difference in the motives of, of attacks in, in those situations? Like, are the United Nations aid workers or United Nations officials targeted for different reasons than, say, um, aid workers for independent uh, NGOs? We haven't been able to determine that. Um, there was a lot of interest, for instance, in whether faith-based organizations in some contexts are attacked more than secular organizations. Uh, so it's it's really hard to determine from the data. I think that what many people neglect to consider is that often there are practical reasons for striking at uh, an aid organization just because it happens to be the softest or the only available target in a certain area. You know, if you're uh, a cell and you need to make a strike, it's going to be easier to hit an NGO as opposed to the generally more protected UN agencies, um, not to mention the fortified sort of government military targets. So I don't think you can say that there's much of a correlation between types of organizations, it's more kind of where the opportunistic targets are. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, in some like jihadist ideology, the UN represents sort of a, a greater evil, perhaps, um, than say international NGOs. At least that was clear in, in some of the responses that we saw to say the 2003 Canal Hotel bombing of the UN headquarters in Iraq. Yes, I think in that case, the UN was directly associated with the coalition forces, with with the occupying power, and they were also had the reputation of the sanctions regime in the years leading up to it. So they, I think there was already a good deal of enmity on the part of um, the population, and particularly on the part of the insurgents against the UN. In other contexts, I've been surprised at how well the different types and even specific organizations are distinguished by the non-state actors. So they know who's who, they know where they get their money from. And depending on what sort of programming they're doing, they might allow them or not. So it really is case by case, um, which I think shows the importance of an individual negotiation strategy for these organizations. Are there details of any specific attacks that sort of exemplify a lot of the, the trends in the data that you've identified and and that you've you know you, that that you discuss in your books, like can you share any sort of anecdotes or um, discuss any specific incidents that are sort of illustrative of of uh, some of the points that you're making? Well, the cases that I chose for the book tend to be um, a bit more spectacular, shall we say? Uh, the Canal Hotel bombing was the I think single uh, largest casualty incident that the UN had and NGOs uh, had their staff involved in that as well. Um, and that, I think, typified the political association problem. Um, when you 
think about the failed and, and disintegrating states, uh, the raid on the um, terrain hotel compound in South Sudan a few years ago, where it was actually government soldiers who broke in, um, killed one staff member, and subjected the others to uh, beatings and, and gang rapes, um, was something that kind of took the aid community uh, in Juba by surprise and really showed sort of the rapid disintegration of the security situation um, with, with the conflict dynamics. Can, can you describe that, that incident in more detail? So their fighting had broken out in Juba uh, between the government and the main opposition faction. And Unlike previous uh, times that fighting had broken out in Juba, the aid community didn't have time to evacuate, and people were just sort of hunkered down. There was one um, hotel which was being used for uh, residents for a few different NGOs, and these people were holed up for days while the fighting literally went on over their heads. But the entire time, um, they were reassuring themselves and the rest of the community in the UN were saying, don't worry, international organizations are not the target here. This is between the two factions and you just need to stay out of the line of fire and you'll be fine. Um, and what happened then suddenly was these soldiers who had actually just won the battle um, broke in and uh, they, uh, the staff were sort of holed up in, in rooms and bathrooms, um, but they just continued to storm their way in and um, executed a national staff member who was of the, uh, of the tribe uh, represented by the opposition. And basically when it, was, it was rioting soldiers is what it was in sort of the worst case scenario. And um, many of the women were repeatedly raped. So how have aid agencies evolved to adapt to these new kinds of security threats? So the ones that tend to respond to conflict scenarios and be in areas where there's a good deal of security risk have really professionalized their approach to security risk management. Now, professionalization is kind of a bad word in some humanitarian circles because it's mistakenly equated with corporatism and bureaucratization. Uh, which can lead to risk aversion. And, and those are real concerns, but that's not what I mean by professionalism. So I'm talking about the mastery of skills and, and knowledge in a given domain and the continual improvement of those skills, um, along with sort of principles and practical tools and techniques that can be trained. So for those that worry that professionalizing security means turning, into, turning it into a kind of a specialist silo that's removed from programming or it removes the human agency from making decisions, and you'll have people blindly following templates and manuals without understanding the situation. I think that's that's misguided. Um, I think the what I put forward in the book is kind of a vision of professionalism as an ethical framework where the goal you're striving for is not the interests of the aid organization or the personal spirit of altruism on the part of the aid providers, but it's really about doing the job as well as possible for the people that you're serving. And so it's all about the outcomes. And I think that the organizations that have taken their security seriously have professionalized it as an area that can be learned and trained and um, continually improved are the ones that have done 
the best uh, in terms of getting access to insecure areas. It's all about enabling access. And I guess, you know, this is partly a reflection of the fact that, you know, as you said at the outset, the fundamental nature of conflict has changed from the time that many of these aid agencies were initially, you know, conceived. Um, and so it's sort of them kind of keeping up with the times in a way. That's right. It's it's what the times require. Um, again, they can never reduce risk to zero. They have to decide what risks are necessary to take on depending on how important what they're doing is, um, which is a concept called program criticality. And that's uh, where I derived my title of necessary risks. What has been the impact on you know, civilians that are trapped in conflict from you know, these trends of, of increasing attacks on aid workers? Well, it's, it affects them indirectly in that Whenever there's a major security attack, the aid operations tend to shrink, um, pull back a bit. Sometimes they consolidate into provincial capitals. Uh, there's definitely um, when the risk level can go up, and then it tends to stay up um, for a while. So you really do see that decisions to expand operations to go meet needs of some population um, in a different area that you're not familiar with, those decisions tend not to happen um, because first priority has to be for your staff. So insecurity is um, a, a real negative in terms of humanitarian access. There are other obstacles to access as well, but insecurity tends to be a, a huge driver of it. And it's really only a few organizations that can be relied on um, to be in the most high-risk areas in um, conflict countries. Uh, well, I will post a link to the book on the website. Thank you so much for your time and, and also for all the great data that you have collected over the years. Well, thanks. And I made publicly just, available. Yeah, yeah. So I would point your uh, listeners to aidworkersecurity.org. Uh, that's a database that's updated in real time and um, publicly downloadable. Uh, thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Abby Stoddard. As I said, I posted a link to her book on the homepage. It is a very interesting and important read, and not only if you are an aid worker, but as I said earlier, if you're just generally interested in, in trends and conflict around the world. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.